This message by Chad Porter, entitled "God Is Just," was recorded at Osmond Church on June second, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is Romans chapter three, verses twenty one to twenty six. This morning's scripture reading will be from the book of Romans, chapter three. We will read verses twenty one through twenty six together. Hear now the word of the Lord. But now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So far, the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, it is indeed a privilege to be able to gather together so freely to look into the Word of life. Your Word that You have given to us, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, which pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, the bone and marrow. We pray that You would accomplish the purpose of Your Word this morning, that You would expose our sinfulness, And God, that You would always sweetly comfort us with Your grace that is found through faith in Christ Jesus, our great Savior and Lord. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. We, As I mentioned last week, we are spending a few weeks walking through some of the biblical themes of one of the great worship songs that we sing. We sang it again this morning, Before the Throne of God Above. And last week we spent time discussing the high priesthood of Christ Jesus, especially kind of brought out in that first verse. We will, uh, as long as Christ Jesus remains before the God's throne as our advocate, no tongue can bid us to depart from there. And this morning we take a look at the second verse, or we take a look at rather the biblical theme or one of them that arises from the second verse of the song that we just sang a moment ago. Allow me to remind us of what those lyrics say before we begin to jump into our text this morning. And that is, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. And it's this great truth that's contained in this song that really bubbles forth from so many places in the New Testament, one of which is Romans chapter 3. And so we're going to spend our time looking at Romans 3, uh, specifically verses 21 through 26 this morning. But before we kind of jump into our text, it got me thinking about depression and despair. 
And I don't know if you deeply struggle with depression. Surely there are some among us who do. Who walk deep and long roads of being tempted to despair, of struggling to see the light, of feeling overwhelmed by the weight of life and our circumstances to the point where they feel deeply depressed and hopeless even. But whether or not you would say that you struggle with depression in any sort of clinical sense, you know what despair is like. You know what despairing of hope is like. You know what it's like to feel like you can't see your way out of a situation. You know what it's like to feel the darkness come upon you, to scream out as David does, How long, O Lord? How long will I be in this pit? You know what it's like to try to cling and to grasp onto something in those moments when you don't really know what to grasp onto. When it feels kind of muddled, when it feels like everything is shifting and you don't know where to go. And surely there's no easy formulaic answer of just recite some mantra or say a certain verse or something like that and you automatically see light and hope and butterflies and everything amazing again. That's just not the way the world works. But what I would like to do is I would like to submit to you one life raft one that the Bible speaks of often, a pillar that it tells us to hold on to, to grasp onto when everything around you feels like it is breaking and crumbling. And that one pillar I think Romans 3 points us to today is God's justice. And that may seem kind of counterintuitive. Justice does not feel maybe on the surface like the most warm and comforting thing, especially if you are despairing about sin in your own life or or the circumstances that you are facing, or even if you don't know why. But I'd like to submit to you a life raft that the Bible offers us of God's justice this morning. And specifically, to think about how God's justice actually produces humble and grateful followers of Christ. God's justice actually produces humble and faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And we'll see this in our text this morning from Romans 3. Specifically, we're going to think about three main points as we so often do. And that is the problem, the provision, and the prescription. The problem, the provision, and the prescription. And so we begin with our first point, the problem. And it's kind of a misnomer. What I want to do here is to think about the situation in which we find ourselves in in Romans 3 today. We have not been preaching through the book of Romans, so I don't expect you to be intimately familiar with Romans 1 and 2 and the first half of Romans 3. So it's important to kind of situate ourselves where we are in the conversation as the Apostle Paul is writing to us here this morning. And under the first heading of the problem, there's actually two problems that I want to look at here. And that's why I said it's a misnomer of the problem. It's actually the problems which kind of coalesce to make one big problem for us. And that first problem that the Apostle Paul situates us in is sin. Sin. That is, any transgression of or breaking of God's law or lack of conformity to God's law. It's doing things that you're not supposed to do or not doing things that you are supposed to do. Sin. 
failure to live up to our commission to reflect God's beauty and perfection and glory as we respond to everything that He has given to us. Sin. That is what sin is, and that's the first problem. And Paul is kind of laboring in the first two and a half chapters of Romans here. It is not a feel-good book, the first two and a half chapters of Romans, because his actual point is to make you feel as bad as possible. He's to tell you that every single person in the universe, Jew or Gentile, which is say Jew or non-Jew, everybody is under sin. Is under sin. And he splits it up into these two categories. Jews are under sin. Gentiles are under sin. Jews, first off, it's maybe a little bit more plain to us and to Paul's readers here that the Jews are condemned under sin. We have talked about, if you have been with us for any length of time, you have seen, rehearsed, we just got done reading through the book of Nehemiah, studying through it, uh, preaching through it. Before that, we looked at the book of Judges for a while. It's easy to see throughout the Old Testament that the, the Jews are condemned under their own disobedience and sin. Time after time, God was gracious to them, was good to them, gave them good things, and then they failed and they transgressed His law. As Jesus quotes Isaiah and sums it up in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, He says, "...this people honors Me with their lips, but their hearts are far from Me. In vain do they worship Me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." And we saw this so clearly in the book of Judges, right? God brings the God, His people up out of Egypt. He brings them into this land that they didn't work for, that He gave to them. A land flowing with milk and honey, with gardens and vineyards already set up, ready-made for them to use. And He brings them into this land, and what do they do? They fall into that cycle, that kind of toilet bowl spiral that we said. So they, they forget God and they turn and worship other gods. They worship idols, and so God delivers them over to oppressors. They cry out to God. He raises up a judge to deliver them, and they go right back into forgetting God. And it kind of spirals down and down and down. That's the pattern of the people of Israel, of the Jewish people. And Paul is really saying in the first part of Romans, you are condemned under sin. Your status as the Jewish people, as God's chosen people under the Old Covenant, that does not absolve you from the need to be on the right side of this ledger with God. Paul says in chapter 2 of Romans, verses 25 and then 28 and 29, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. That is, being a Jew is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the first thing Paul tells us under sin is the Jews are clearly condemned under the weight of sin, but it's not just the Jews, it's also the Gentiles too. Look at verse, verses 14 and 15 of Romans 2 if you have your Bibles open. Flip back one page, look, verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience is also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. A, uh, 
a Christian writer, thinker named Francis Schaeffer, uh, in the uh, 20th century wrote, he used to say, or he said, that uh, Romans 2 is really about the invisible tape recorder. And what he meant by that is he kind of postulated a, a what if or a hypothetical. He said, imagine that you have an invisible tape recorder hanging around your neck. Whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, where you are, whether you have heard the word of truth or not heard the word of truth, you have this invisible tape recorder around your neck. And it records everything that you do for your entire life. Specifically, it records every time you say you ought or you should. Every time you say you to do this or you should do this. Every time you tell your kids that they ought to do this or they should do this or your friends or your spouse or your loved ones or the stranger that you meet on the street or the person who cuts you off on the freeway. Every time you say ought or should, this little tape recorder is recording it. And then let's say you get to judgment day. And you get to judgment day and you stand before God and you say, I didn't know that you existed. Well, Paul has other things to say about that in Romans chapter 1. He has, he has to say, you knew enough uh, as far as everything that you see around you, but let's take that invisible tape recorder. Let's set aside any type of divinely revealed law and let's just take what comes out of your own heart. Let's, let's take your own standard of living that you have tried to hold others to and claim to kind of hold to yourself. And what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 2 is two things. One, he's saying that that invisible tape recorder, that moral code that you give off, it's going to bear striking resemblances to the divinely revealed law of God. Because what God has said is as created beings, He has written on our hearts His law. He has hardwired it into us, so to speak. The law of God in many ways. And though it is twisted and deformed and perverted, it is still there. So that's the first thing he's saying. Your tape recorder is going to show that God's law is written on your heart. And secondly, your tape recorder is going to show that you fail miserably. You don't keep your own law. And I think if we think about that ourselves, we'll know that that's true. I mean, if we really, if this wasn't such a like blatantly false hypothetical of there being an invisible a tape recorder around our neck, it would be kind of scary. Especially if we said that the contents of that tape recorder was going to be broadcast to everybody, right? Everybody was going to get to see what we thought, what we, what we wanted to do, what we thought everybody else should do, and then own our own actions, thoughts, desires of our own hearts. And really Paul's point in doing this and bringing this out in Romans chapter 2 to both the Jews and the Gentiles to say that nobody's exempt from standing in need before God in sin. As Author and pastor Tim Keller put it, nobody in, his, in the history of the world will be able to stand in the judgment day because you're not going to even be able to stand before your own words, before your own standards. Therefore, we are all absolutely lost. As a, Paul says in Romans 3.9, for we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. We talked about this last week, that this really means that this is the fundamental problem of our lives is our own sinfulness. Whether we recognize it or not, whether we believe it or not, we spent a lot of time or a little bit of time talking about this last week. The first main problem that Paul sets up here in Romans chapter 2 is sin and that we are all condemned before our holy God. God is perfect and we are not and we stand under sin. That's the first problem. The second problem 
that kind of coalesces into these uh, the other one that that forms this one big problem that we stand in. It's not so much sin, but it's justice. It's the concept that I said I was going to offer a life raft or a lifeboat when we are despairing and hopeless. But in a way, it can join forces with sin and prove to put us in an, in an unimaginable bind. Because it is clear that God is absolutely just. It is not only clear that we are sinful and condemned under sin, under rebellion and rejection of God who made everybody in this room and in this universe, but that God is perfectly just. Absolutely just. He is the prototypical just judge. The Bible makes this abundantly clear in so many places. For example, Proverbs 17.5, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Exodus 23.7, Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked, the Lord says. Isaiah 5.22 and 23, God is condemning people for doing the opposite of what He Himself does. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink, but who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of His rights. Or in Habakkuk chapter 1, He says, You who are of purer eyes than to look at evil. You see, God is absolutely just. He's completely perfect. I used this analogy a couple weeks ago with our Axis Junior Hires. We were uh, talking about hell. Our final message before the break for summer was being condemned <laughs> under the weight of our own sin and God's punishment, which is a great positive message to send our kids off in the summer with. But there is amazing hope, which we will hear about today as well. But I used this analogy when we were talking about it with them. I asked how many had siblings. I don't know how many of you have siblings in here, but I think it's most. I don't think there's many maladjusted only children like myself. And Sam, can't, Sam, you're an only child, right? Right, we've got two in here, strong. Uh, there's a psychologist, one of my friends in college came, as they're a psych major and they were studying and they came and they're like, oh, I read about this psychologist today who postulated that only children were like a drain on society. And just kind of worthless. And I said, oh, that's my new goal is not to be a drain on society. I don't know if I'm accomplishing that or not, but... Uh, if you do have siblings, I would, imagine, I would ask you to think of a time when your sibling did something and they were not punished for it. And it's probably something that could even be something that you had done and received the wrath of your parents for. But then your sibling did it and then nothing happened. It was like they didn't care or nobody it wasn't a big deal. You know? Or maybe your sibling did something and you saw them do it and get away with it and you did something similar and your parents see you and they come down with your hammer and you're like, that's not fair. You know, you scream it out. Or maybe you do scream it out when you're younger. When we get older, that doesn't really go away. That just kind of stays more silent within us. Um, but there's a deep cry within our hearts of fairness, of justice. You know, it's why... If you imagine, we've talked about it before, a judge having a murderer on trial, someone who's clearly guilty, and the judge just decides you're going to be, you're going to go free. I hear what the jury has said that you are guilty. 
I tell you, your sentence is nothing. Go. I know that's probably not possible under our, <laughs> our justice code, but anyways, just imagine a man who, a man or a woman who's clearly guilty of a heinous crime such as murder, and they they let the perpetrator go free. Imagine what the family in that courtroom feels in that moment. Or when the family of the victim is in the courtroom and the person is not convicted of the full crime, but only like a partial one, and they get off the slap of the wrist, and there's this, but they 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 know that they're guilty. There's this cry of anguish in their hearts for justice. And that's because we know it is right to execute righteous judgment. It is right to execute righteous judgment. It's the way that our whole society functions. And when it goes awry, be it in our homes with our siblings or in our courts when we see unjust verdicts rendered or people get off free on a technicality, it burns within us that just judgments need to be rendered. And the same is surely true with God. If God is perfectly just, if He's perfectly righteous, He must execute right judgments. And if we are sinful, Jew, Gentile, Christian, non-Christian, if we all stand sinful before a holy God and God must act justly, you see the problem. You see the main problem here. How in the world are we to stand? How in the world are we to avoid judgment? Are we to avoid the wrath of God against sin? And that's the problem that Paul has set up here in the first two and a half chapters of Romans. The problem of us being in this precarious, to put it lightly, situation before God as sinful people before a holy God who must render right judgments. And that's where Paul brings us as he begins in verse 21 of our text this morning. The question that cries out is, where's the fix? What's going to happen? What is going to happen? How is the situation changed? And then Paul says in verse 21 and following, the heart of the Gospel that we talk about so often here, the good news of grace. Look at verse 21 again with me. But now... Actually, look at verse 20. Summing it up, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. But now, but now the righteousness from God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. The fix is the heart of the Gospel. And we often talk about the fix of the problem as forgiveness as God forgives us of our sins. And that's absolutely true. But I think subconsciously we can have an idea in our own minds that forgiveness means 
forgetting about something, just kind of sweeping it under the rug, so to speak, or, or just kind of saying, you did this to me. I could take revenge on you. I could exact something from you, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to forget about it. And like, that's what forgiveness is. And that's what God does. But that's not what God does. That is not what biblical forgiveness of from God to humanity is because he can't do that. He would be acting inconsistent with his character. He would be an unjust judge if he allowed sin and rebellion to go unpunished. The fix is forgiveness, but the foundation of this forgiveness is something we call propitiation. Propitiation. And it's not a word that we use kind of commonly in our own talk today, but the the concept is alive and well in our society. I thought recently thinking about this concept of a trip we took, my family and I, last year uh, down to Southern California where we're from, and we stayed in an Airbnb um, many of you have, I'm sure, used Airbnbs, and there's awesome ones, and then there's like not awesome ones, and then there's some in the middle, right? So uh, this particular Airbnb was totally fine, except for they told us that free there's like a dedicated parking space. It was an I was like a condo in a condo complex, and so there's designated parking for you when you get there. So we showed up, and it was dark by the time we showed up, and there wasn't a de- designated parking space. It was like there just wasn't, and so we had to find this parking on the street, kind of in front of the complex, and it was a Interesting situation, which was fine. We found it. We got in. Everything was okay. And uh, I kind of sloughed it off. It's like, oh, whatever. That's annoying, but we were able to find parking. And the next day, I noticed that the street was, like, empty, you know, but I just figured it's because of everybody's at work, and I didn't think about it until I was in our condo, and I heard the familiar sound because I went to school around this area. I went to college down there in the L.A. area. And there's street sweeping on one day a week, almost everywhere during a specific time. And I heard the sound of a street sweeper, like which by living down there for so long, I, oh, that's what that sounds like. And kind of I just heard the sound and immediately I felt something in my stomach. And I was like, oh, no. And I kind of, oh, no. And I ran out. And it kind of all kind of came together. And I jumped. I put on my shoes. I ran down the stairs. And I got right out to the curb just in time to see a nice police officer put the a ticket underneath my windshield wiper. And I said, no. And I pleaded with him and I gave him my sob story. I'm so sorry. And he's like, there's nothing I can do. It's already in the system. You know, and um, I had a parking ticket. And so what in the world does this have to do with propitiation? Well, propitiation is appeasing. It has ideas of appeasing. More specifically, appeasing or turning turning away the wrath of someone else that's upon you. And so when I got that parking ticket from that police officer and that justice feeling, you know, burned within me, I'm like, this is not right. I shouldn't be held accountable because there, there was also no sign. There was, it was hidden there. I'm not going to complain about it anymore, but, uh, I couldn't see the sign. And, uh, but when I got that parking ticket, I owed the city something. There was something levied against me. There was a threat of further fining if I didn't pay. There was a threat of, you know, legal action if I didn't, relinquish the required funds. There was a need for there to be a propitiation, a turning away the wrath, so to speak, of the city upon me. And now we don't speak about it as wrath. There's a turning away of like the penalties that were due to me. And for the, don't worry, we talked with the Airbnb people and they reimbursed us for the ticket so we didn't have to pay for it. I know you were all very concerned about that. Uh, but that's one small way in which the kind of idea of propitiation is here and we know it 
even if we don't talk about it that way. But we see it on just a grander scale here in the problem that's set up in Romans 1 and 2. There's a problem, there's a debt that must be paid. The unmitigated wrath of God lies upon sin and it needs to or else He would be unjust and unholy. And I'm not talking about this crazy, out-of-control anger of God where He's flying around or something. There is nothing un- like uncontrolled or unmeasured or like ludicrous or out of His mind about God's wrath against sin. It is settled. It is true. He is patient. But it is there. He has wrath against sin. There is a penalty that must be paid. And the problem with our situation is that we can't pay that penalty. We can't just pay it like a parking ticket. We can't make propitiation for ourselves by offering food. You ever see like, like vigils or uh, small shrines where like food offerings are brought before deities and things like that. We can't make that of ourselves. We talked about that last week. The offerings that the high priests offered, they weren't sufficient to actually make provision for the problem that the people found themselves in. The provision that is made, that it talks about here in Romans 3, is the provision of Jesus making propitiation for us. God sending God the Father, sending God the Son to make propitiation of His own wrath against sin in our place. The cross fixes this dissonance, this problem that existed as Jesus makes propitiation for us. Whom God put forward, verse 25, as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The problem that we stood under is fixed by God. The problem, the dissonance of the Old Testament that really the sacrificial system is meant to point us to is fixed here too. Because really, we know that the blood of bulls and goats, as Hebrews 9 and 10 talks about, the blood of bulls and goats cannot cover sins. They're not sufficient to cover sins. And yet God is passing over sins from people. And yet He's a holy God who must execute wrath on iniquity. And so there's this dissonance that how is it going to be rectified? How is the problem going to be fixed in multiple ways that is addressed here in Romans 3? The way that God fixes the problem is by providing a lamb from within the Godhead itself to execute the wrath and the judgment against sin upon God, because of the great love with which He loved us, sent His Son, true God, and tr- to become true God and true man to bear His own wrath against sin that we deserve. Do you see how that fixes the problem? you see how that addresses that legal need? As Isaiah 53 points out, surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. 
And so the problem of sin and God's just judgment is met by the provision of God's own Son to bear the wrath that we deserved so that we might live through Him. It's what we talk about all the time here at Wellspring. It's because it's our fundamental need and we are forgetful people. It's why the Bible calls and talks about it in thousands of different ways from tons of different angles over and over again. The problem of sin and justice is met by the provision of God and Christ to meet our need. And finally, we turn now from the problem and the provision to the prescription. From problem to provision to prescription. And by prescription, I mean implications. So what? Why should we care about a lot of these things that we have just talked about? How does it connect with what we're going through or talking about and singing before the throne of God above? And how does it connect to despair? Like I said at the beginning, so what? There are three implications, necessary implications to the problem and the provision that we've just talked about together. And the first is answering the question, how do we become connected to all of the stuff that is talked about here in Romans 1, 2, and 3? In other words, how do we become connected in a good way to the propitiation that God made in Christ Jesus? Because it is not a propitiation of everyone in the entire universe. How do we receive God's grace? How do we avert the wrath? How are we connected with it? And Romans 3, verses 21-26 is abundantly clear. It's through faith. Verse 21 and 22, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, the first part of it, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, the end, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The answer to the question of how do we get connected to this, how do we get connected to this great offer that has been given is by faith. It is not by offering gifts it is not by doing good deeds. It is not by trying to show that you're trying really hard. That is the way to get yourself condemned. The way to be connected to this vitally and truly is by faith. Receiving and resting in Christ alone for salvation. Trusting in Christ alone for your hope. That is the only way to be connected to it, to this. And it's here I'd like to once again call. If you are not a believer in Christ, if you are not a Christian and you count yourself outside of this and you're, you don't come here counting yourself as a brother or sister in Christ, I would implore you. I would plead with you here to strongly consider this situation that we've spent some time explaining here today. There's no more important thing for you to think about in your life. Absolutely no more important thing for you to think about in your life. 
Because if you are not a Christian, you stand opposed to the Lord. And I do not want that. We do not want that. And we offer the hope of faith. The hope which is freely and graciously offered to you is faith in Jesus. And faith is admitting that you are weak. Faith is admitting that you are sinful and receiving Christ Jesus alone for what you cannot do yourself. That's what you have to do. What you have to do is receive. And so I plead with you this morning, if you are not a Christian here, consider this. Think about this. Talk with us about this. And yield. Accept Christ in faith. It is offered to you freely if you would have it. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul goes on to talk about later in Romans 10. And so if you are not a believer in Christ Jesus, the only way to be connected with the solution to this problem is through faith. And it is offered to you this morning and I would plead with you to accept it. Secondly, there's an implication for arrogance that comes out of our passage today. The reason I say this is because if we understand what we've been talking about, Christ's work from the Father on our behalf, we should realize that the cross criticizes us more than anyone or anything ever could. If you think you have a critical friend or loved one, it holds no candle to what the cross says about you. Because the cross says that the sin that you think is not a big deal or the problems that you carry, which, yeah, they're important, but really what's important is this person. But really what's wrong with the situation is this. The cross says that your own sinfulness, which you and I are so prone to look away from and mitigate and like kind of push down and count as not that good, that sin, you want to know how bad it actually was? It's actually bad enough to where the spotless Son of God had to suffer and die and bear God's wrath against it in your place. Like, that's how bad your sin is. And so there's a clear call here against arrogance. It's exactly where Paul goes in the verse right after our text this morning, verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. The cross of Christ the beautiful offer to the problem that is present in the universe can only be connected to by faith and it destroys any type of arrogance that you or I can have. And so as we continue to struggle and battle with our own pride, with our own selfishness, let us look to the cross and put to death the arrogance which lies within us. Thirdly, and finally, Despair. Not only does the cross of Christ completely dismantle the arrogance that rises within our hearts, but the cross of Christ also obliterates despair. You know what I'm talking about. You know what it's like to feel the weight of your own sin. To, in those moments where we see a little bit more clearly how messed up we still are, how bad we are, how bad we acted towards our husband or wife or kid or friend or parents, when we see 
the ugliness of our sin and we're not we're not like numbing ourselves with Instagram or Facebook or video games or whatever the case may be. When we see it, when you see it and you feel that deeply within your soul, you know what I'm talking about. But the cross of Christ does not only obliterate arrogance, it gives us that life raft, that hope, that pillar in the midst of despair. It's why we sang earlier and and recited earlier, or I recited for you earlier, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. In the midst of despair, in the midst of hopelessness, God's justice becomes an incredible benefit to us. And though that may seem counterintuitive, when you are despairing in the pit, we look upward. When we feel the slings and arrows of Satan coming against us and telling us there is no hope, you are abandoned. There is no hope. You have crucified again Christ Jesus upon the cross by sinning over and over again and again, by looking at what you looked at on the internet, by doing what you did to your friend, by being the type of person that you are. Satan comes at us hard in our weakest moments, but upward we look and see Him there who made an end of all of our sin. Because our sinless Savior died, our sinful soul is counted free. Because God the just, the perfectly just God, who does not mince words with justice, He never takes a shortcut, that God is satisfied to look on Him and pardon you. And so when you are tempted to despair by the lies of Satan, let's look up to the One who is in the throne room of God, who God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon us. I close with this. William Cooper, uh, 18th century English poet and hymn writer, uh, battled deeply and longly uh, and uh, chronically his whole life with deep depression, both before and after he became a Christian. In 1759, uh, uh, Cooper was 28 years old. He had a total mental breakdown, and he tried three different ways to commit suicide. This guy wrote many of the hymns that we sing today. There is a fountain filled with blood. We sing that often. He was a great man of God had a total mental breakdown and tried to commit suicide three times. He became convinced that he was damned beyond hope. In December 1763, he was committed to St. Albans Insane Asylum where the 58-year-old Dr. Nathaniel Cotton tended to the patients. By God's wonderful design, Cotton was also an evangelical believer and lover of God and the Gospel. He loved Cooper and held out hope to him repeatedly in spite of Cooper's insistence that he was damned and beyond hope. Six months into his stay there, Cooper found a Bible lying, not by accident, on a bench in the garden. First, he looked at John 11, and he saw so much benevolence, mercy, and goodness, this is Cooper's words, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct. And then he felt a ray of hope. Next, he turned in God's providence to Romans 3, 
25. And in the words of Cooper, immediately I received the strength to believe it. And the full beams of the Son of Righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement that he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and received the gospel. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the very real guilt that lies within you, look to God's justice. Look to God's justice, which has been fully satisfied in Christ Jesus. On your behalf, believe and rest in this this morning. Let's pray. Father, we confess once again the brokenness that continues that remains and lies within us. And yet, we look so quickly to the Word of the Cross. May we do that. May we look quickly to the Word of the Cross this morning. And may we see truly and finally and fully Christ's work on our behalf so that You the God who is just are satisfied to look on Him and pardon us. I pray that You would use this as a salve to our souls to demolish arrogance within us, to uplift us in despair and disheartenment, to give us hope in knowing that You are with us, that You have not abandoned us, that our great High Priest lives forever interceding for us even now before the throne of God above. Father, we thank You for these truths we ask that you would help us to believe them, to receive once again the gospel of grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.